I'm Michael Krasny, and I want to welcome you. I'm pleased, in fact, to welcome you once again to another weekly episode of our global podcast, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We invite any of you who haven't yet become members of this podcast to do so by simply going to graymatter.show and becoming part of a podcast marked by deep dive interviews, which are interactive and cover a wide range of intellectually stimulating and engaging topics with leading national and international figures, experts, authors, artists, and opinion shapers, interviews distinguished by both high content and technical excellence. In this episode, we welcome biotech engineer and renewables expert Joey Zwillinger, the co-founder, along with New Zealander Tim Brown and CEO of Albert Shoes, now a $1.4 billion footwear company with brick-and-mortar stores across the U.S., the U.K., Europe, New Zealand, China, Japan, South Korea. Allbirds has a high profile, especially for its commitment to decarbonization and environmental sustainability, as well as comfort and design, the three pillars this company, which began as a small startup, has built its reputation and success on. Joey Zwillinger, the CEO, was educated at Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and the University of California, Berkeley. I welcome Joey. Good to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm thrilled to be here. And as as I mentioned to you when we were just getting getting ready for this, uh, I've heard your voice for many decades, and so it's a special privilege to be on with you. Well, thank you for that. I've been around many decades and hope to be at least a few more. Some facts first for our listeners uh, before we get started in conversation with Joey. There are 20 billion pairs of shoes sold worldwide each year. Uh, that's a pretty extraordinary figure, but each year the fashion industry drops over a couple billions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere, and some, like Joey Zwillinger, Stella McCartney, just to drop a few names, are dedicated to achieving net zero carbon emissions and producing material from byproducts not growing from the industry. Allbirds was founded in 2015. It's a shoe company, and it's dedicated to decarbonization, as I said, and the use of eco-friendly products and naturally derived materials. The name comes from New Zealand and the Kiwis. They don't have any uh, native land mammals in New Zealand. Lots of birds, right out of Hitchcock, if you've ever been there, down under. And Allbirds is a success story, and we're going to hear about the challenges and some of the downsides as well. This is not an infomercial. But let's get a narrative arc first from you, Joey. Um, you know, you were making microalgae at one point, and then suddenly you got into this startup. It was a small startup to start out. You and a soccer star by the name of Tim Brown, your wives I know are best friends. I want to know how you pitched this to those who put up the seed money, because in four years you become over a billion-dollar company, but you had to have a go-to market strategy, which you did have, and you got a couple million in seed money from investors almost right off the bat. What was your pitch? I mean, you go in like, uh, uh, like Shark Tank and convince them. Was it an environmental pitch at first? No, you know, and it never has been that that the environment was going to be the reason why people would buy our product and make it a successful business. However, um, what what I what I learned when I was working in microalgae, we had the sophisticated tools to use biotechnology to engineer these microcellular organisms to eat low carbon intensity sugars and we programmed it to spit out anything that could replace some version of a petrochemical or, or a fuel as well. And my focus was on the, the green chemicals industry. And what I found very consistently would I would go to market and talk with multinationals and uh, some of our now competitors, and they would always 
get very excited by the idea of this, this no compromise offering where you had this high performance component that didn't leave a dent on the earth. But by conversation three, it went to this devolved sourcing conversation of, can you just make plastic and make it cheaper? Because that's what we want. We want to expand our margins. And so I, 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 I had this, this constant uh, pushing against string type of exercise where I knew the components existed to give this no compromise offering. I had a lot of conviction that consumers wanted something that was no compromise, that they could feel good about and have a great product. And the brands were getting in the way. So I, I knew that I wanted to go downstream and get closer to the consumer and really do sustainable design and sustainability as a core engine of the business. The, the real offering had to be born from naturally derived materials. And I didn't know what industry it was. So fortunately, as you mentioned, my wife happened to be best friends with, uh, with the now wife of my co-founder, Tim Brown. And he had been working on a novel shoe concept with Merino wool, born from New Zealand, where he was a native. And, and it was a, a really intuitively well-connected idea to what I saw. And we started talking, this is kind of late 2014 when we started talking in earnest. Uh, I had him, I had him out to my house in Mill Valley for about four days and we, we, uh, I cooked him a lamb stew. Uh, that was a bit of a, an attempt at humor to get him on board. And we, we walked around the hills and we talked about this idea that not only was it the right thing to do and where consumers were headed in terms of buying more sustainable, more environmentally friendly products, but it could be an engine for growth. And if we aligned our business where we had every shoe that we made was lower carbon intensity, but through that constraint on innovation, we made really unique products that people coveted and, and created a better experience that was more comfortable, higher performance, whatever the end use occasion was gonna be, that we could align this business model so every shoe we sold was great for our business financially and wonderful for the world. And that, that was the pitch. We could be different and people will never tire of innovation. Ours just happens to be from naturally born materials. Well, you've done an impressive job, and you're cutting your carbon footprint after just a few years by about 60%, and you're after that uh, <laughs> zero or close to zero as you can get by 2030. That's essentially what the goals are now. But this includes, I should mention, just for the record, this is, we're talking about packaging, we're talking about the supply chain, shipping, shoelaces, the whole nine 100%. yards, as they say. Yep. Yeah. Yep, for those for those wonks in the in the business, it's it's scope one, two, and three. But yes, it includes everything from from farm to foot for us, and 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 even the end of life of that product. So we count absolutely everything. We are on track to hit our twenty thirty target of of uh, very close to zero, if not zero, carbon emission for all of that. And uh, we were talking a little bit earlier before we started doing this live about businesses for social responsibility. It's good for profits because. Consumers really like when they read about no harm being done to the earth and these kind of, uh, well, advantages that you're offering to them in terms of environmental advantages that appeal to the uh, the social-minded. And, and uh, it's it's good for sales. And then you also do some community stuff like uh, Souls for Souls, S-O-L-E-S for S-O-U-L-S. Um, how do you convince people that you're not greenwashing, though? I mean, that's always the charge that one hears, isn't it? Yeah, and it's rife in our industry, um, and it's something we compete against every day. Um, I'll get to that, but let me underscore one one really critical point. I, the number of people out there that buy our products or buy any products 
for sustainable reasons is very small. And we've known this from the beginning. We People don't want sustainable products. They want great products. Now, we have a belief that that truly phenomenal products are are also sustainable. But the reason why people are buying is because the product is better. And and so we we have uh, formed this this belief through a lot from my experience that Mother Nature has the best innovation and has the longest time working at it to make the best products that can make the most comfortable shoes or the most high durability or high performance, whatever that object is. So we took that belief and just constrained our innovation and made better products. We think we make the best product for walking around the city and uh, doing whatever you need in your in your in your daily life that exists on the planet. It's incredible. You're selling on the basis of the product more than on the environmental or social minded stuff. Uh, uh, absolutely, and I, I think it's important to to recognize there's there's you know an organic food movement. It was really important to buy organic, but there's a tangible human health benefit to that because you're ingesting less pesticides and. You're eating food that's better for your human health. That might be true with topical skincare. It might be true with chemicals in the home, but people don't perceive wearing plastic on your feet to be as bad of a thing. So we, we wanna face that reality and, and make sure that uh, I communicate that this is, this is, we are doing, we are making the best products for you as a, to walk around, to walk around and, and feel great about yourself when you're walking and be less tired at the end of your day. Um, it also happens to be fueled by the lowest carbon emission in our industry. And the, the, the accountability that we keep, to go back to your original question, we have the, the, the full carbon emission life cycle on every single shoe that we make on the product, individual product level, it is labeled on the shoe. Sometimes like on the calories, outside, right? when you, it's like calories on a food label. That's exactly right. It's the perfect analogy. And you know, with the regulation that's been coming around increased disclosure for companies to disclose the kind of emissions that they're making, it will eventually become the standard where people can choose between a different price level of a product as well as a different carbon emission level. Where do the 300 million pairs that wind up in landfill each year figure into this whole picture? Yeah, well, it, it depends what they're made of. Um, and the end of life needs to be taken into consideration when you're counting your carbon life cycle. And that's a, an incredibly important feature. So we have a very durable product. We've engineered it to last as, as long as possible while, while uh, it, you know, being constrained by a pretty rigorous uh, cycle on the ground when you're walking around all day. Um, so that that is very important. So it's eliminating waste and it's paying particular attention to the chemicals that are used in the manufacture of the shoe so that when they are disposed of, and we expect that that, that will continue to be the case for, for quite a long time, that those are either biodegradable or they have locked in carbon that is going to be buried in, in a landfill and and take it out of the atmosphere and bury it in the ground. And that's a great carbon mitigation strategy. And that's, that's how we focus our efforts. And where do offsets fit into this picture? Offsets are um, an in interesting, interesting world, and it's been changing and very dynamic. We have, um, in the past, offset any remaining carbon that that is not uh, mitigated through the way we manufacture the product. Um, but much more important than offsets are what you're doing to invest inside of your supply chain to reduce your actual emissions in the manufacture, transport, use, and end of life of that product. So predominantly, our focus is on material sourcing, uh, manufacturing, and transportation. That's where everything, like 99% of the impact to the earth is happening. And so that's where we focus our efforts. There was a movie that I'm sure many people who are listening or will be listening saw called Air about Nike and how 
they managed particularly to get Michael Jordan, which made the dramatic difference in terms of sales and everything else. Sure. Now, you've had some celebrities. All I've seen a lot of uh, famous actresses. Uh, I'm talking about Hilary Dove, Jennifer uh, Garner, Cindy Crawford, some big names in the world of motion pictures, uh, Blake Lively, Kate Hudson, who have said that they love your shoes. Um, is this paid advertising, and how does it help in terms of sales? Fortunately, none of that is done by us. That was uh, all of those names are just pure organic. They found the product, loved it. I think they uh, they they probably like what value that expresses about them in terms of their alignment with the interest to decarbonize. Um, so that's great too. But I think it's really just because the products are fantastic, look good, and are really comfortable. And and that has been a good propellant for us over 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 the years. And I think. Um, you know, when we find a real authentic connection, we sometimes do uh, a more in-depth partnership with people that have great influence on the consumer uh, consumer mindset. Uh, but typically, it's just an organic one, and we've had the great fortune to get our shoes on the feet of some uh, some people that drive a lot of eyeballs, and they come back to our website and our stores. And I certainly will not turn that down. It does help the sales, doesn't it? I'm wondering about <laughs> what what hurts the sales, though. There was a PETA lawsuit, which you, which you won, uh, about mistreatment of sheep in the Merino farms in New Zealand. And does a lawsuit like that, even when you win it, hurt? Or class action lawsuits that you've had? Or durability issues? Are those things hurt the sales? Uh, well, certainly if you have durability issues and quality issues, that's that's never, never good. Um, and we, we really, you know, we've been a a direct business, meaning that we transact almost all of our purchases between the company and the consumer directly, whether that's through our website or our stores. And so we have this very fast feedback loop from consumers and we take that feedback and we integrate it back into changes in our product to continually improve it. And, you know, if we ever have reviews or people saying that things are bad, like that, that is, that, that hurts us to the core um, because the quality of the product uh, drives word of mouth, and if you can't have good quality, you're you're dead. Um, so we pay a huge amount of attention to that. Uh, you know, on the lawsuit side, um, we, we've we've had a couple lawsuits against us in in the area of uh, call it uh, animal welfare or environmental claims, and uh, we've we've always won them very quickly and easily because we're so authentic in the work that we do, uh, and and we really really put the mission of, of making better things in a better way. And this part of the better way is so central to what we do that, um, you know, litigation is unfortunately a, a part of the, the U S system. Uh, I'm, I'm married to a lawyer and have lots of lawyers around me. And so I'm well aware of, of, of what being in business in America means. And this is, this is part of the game, but if you do things right, uh, fortunately the justice system, uh, sees through, uh, you know, a variety of these, uh, fairly flimsy lawsuits. So, we're talking about entrepreneurship, but we're really also talking about carbon footprint and questions of environmental responsibility of companies. And uh, Joey Zwillinger is with us, and he is the CEO and uh, really a partner uh, with Tim Brown in the ownership of uh, of Allbirds. Um, the brand is built on, as you're indicating, comfort and design, and and certainly sustainability. Those are, as I said, the pillars. But there's also uh, well, you put out the message that you do a lot of regenerative agriculture. You have a carbon tax and renewable energy, and you're now a public company. And so those things are really important for your, not only entrepreneurship, 
but also for the company's health and its profits, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And and maybe I can give you just a couple couple examples of how we bring this to life. So, you know, what one is with the uh, the the wool that we use uh, predominantly from New Zealand. There's um, a couple different kinds of sheep, but merino sheep make a particular fiber uh, when, when they when they grow their wool. That is really a miraculous fiber doing temperature regulations, really like it's as close to cashmere as you can get um, in terms of softness while retaining great durability uh, and, and a whole bunch of other wonderful attributes. And and yet, you know, there there has been a history within the wool harvesting industry of, of not the greatest practices of how you raise the sheep and how you treat the sheep. And so from from day one, we've really focused on uh, on a uh, certification. We use this group called New Zealand Merino, who certifies our wool as ZQ certified to make sure that the animals are treated very well. And we have extended that in partnership with them to make a label called ZQRX, which is a way to regeneratively harvest the wool. And 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 what that means is there's rotation of crops, rotational grazing of the sheep, and different farm practices. And and the power of that is quite incredible. You know, if you take these practices and you applied it to uh, a third of the world's agriculture, we would mitigate and sequester a hundred percent of the carbon that we use, uh, that we that we emit as a as a species every year through fossil fuels and everything else. Uh, we would we would sequester that in the soil that the animals and the crops are are planted on, and that that is all technology that has existed for you know thousand years. So it's nothing new. It's getting back to a little bit more organic style of of farming is is another way you can think about it. Albeit there's some nuances between the two, and so we've put a big energy into that to make sure that we get the highest quality wool, but we also have the highest animal welfare and the and the best land practices because that's supports us in our effort to get down to zero carbon emissions by 2030, which is um, for sure the most advanced uh, ambition within our industry. So, you know, that's one example. And maybe I'll walk you through one more because I think it's it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting case study of how an industry like ours can be so competitive with so many with so many companies vying for market share, but be can, can also be quite collaborative with one another when it comes down to particular uh, componentry within the, within the within the common use well, components me, for didn't shoes. You, uh, move into a collaboration with Adidas, didn't you? So that's part of this. You know, the um, I, I think this vigorous competition for market share while collaboration on sustainability is is a mantra that could be could be used really effectively in a number of industries. You know, one that I, that I want to share is uh, back in 2016, we we came out with our first product. It was called the Wool Runner. It was merino wool upper. We had these uh, vegetable oil-based insoles, which are incredibly soft and, and, and cushioning underfoot. Uh, but we didn't have the sole of the shoe done in a way that was environmentally responsible. The only thing out there was a petrochemically derived foam. Um, so from my previous background, I knew there was an opportunity to partner with a group down in Brazil, which is where 50% of the world's sugarcane comes from. And this company is called Braskem. Um, they're a green chemicals company as well as a traditional petrochemicals company, but they have big ambitions to go all green. And, and we, we made a phone call. Uh, we, we hadn't sold many shoes yet, so they uh, told us to, uh, to pound sand. So as any good entrepreneur, uh, you 
get persistent. <laughs> we, we ended up getting on a plane. We mocked up uh, the front page of a Wall Street Journal, and we wrote the article about what the industry would, what the world would say about a collaboration between our two companies. Went down with this this faux newspaper clipping, uh, and and pitched them on on this idea that they could connect a waste stream from sugarcane processing, so something that would already just be a scrap, and go through a number of chemical engineering steps with the equipment that they had, uh, and and create the world's first carbon negative uh, foam for shoes. And they deliberated for a bit. It was a very big, many multi-million dollar investment from Braschem to be able to pull this off. And we said, oh, by the way, we don't want to keep this. We want to open source this to the entire industry. And, and I think that helped, uh, helped move things along, certainly for them. And we, we eventually uh, launched that product in 2018. We call it Sweet Foam. And it is an incredibly high cushion, amazingly comfortable uh, bottom unit for a shoe, uh, yet it's carbon negative in the way that it's produced because it's using this waste stream and it's a full closed loop cycle with uh, even the electricity generated to produce all this is used from the biomass from sugarcane uh, that, that's, that's uh, scrapped in the process of harvesting sugar. So this is now open source technology that we've shared. It's in all of our shoes and it's phenomenally comfortable for consumers while making a pretty nice breakthrough for the industry in terms of carbon. It's very impressive. Uh, when I first read about it, I thought, boy, this kind of open sourcing is really, hope it catches on and becomes infectious. Um, but you use a lot of renewables aside from sugarcane, wood and tree fiber and castor bean oil. And, and we got some questions coming in. Let me go to them. Uh, here's Lisa who says, how do you ensure that you can maintain a competitive edge in the market while staying true to your values? Thanks for the question, Lisa. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, when we started the business, we never thought that the wool runner would be the only thing that could sustain a business with the ambition we did. We never thought merino wool could be the only component. Um, the core of our company has always been around innovation, and we have always focused that innovation on breakthrough materials that deliver amazing new experiences for consumers that happen to be from nature. Uh, and so that that is the core engine of us. And the only way to stay ahead of competition with a vicious competition in our industry. I mean, vicious. I mean, you see a 20 billion pair a year industry uh, and you know there's going to be a bunch of people that are scrapping it out to take their share from it. So um, that happens. I recommend the I recommend the film Air again in terms of it, understanding that competition. I thought they did a good yeah. job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a fun, fun movie. Um, and, and, of course, a lot to learn from uh, what Nike's done in terms of competition in the footwear industry. The, um, but, yeah, that, that's, that's what you got to do to stay ahead. It's got to be amazing innovation and compelling storytelling. And when those two things come right and they come right at the same time, you can have just a, a real breakthrough and, and leave people well behind you. Uh, we've got another question from Reed who wants to know, how do you see Allbird values extrapolated into other products and industries? Are these practices adaptable to many other areas? Thank you, Reed. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, that, that's the legacy that we would like to leave. Um, you know, the, we actually wrote a vision, um, in 2016, when we just launched the business, we took seven people from in the company and we wrote a vision for what we, what we wanted to look like in 2026, which we're, we're now, uh, scarily, uh, close to that time. And, and we wrote that people would be talking in 2026 about the all birds of blank in, in whatever that industry was. And, and what we meant by that was that 
the it was a company who understood that the opportunity to take renewable materials and base their innovation engine on that to sell a better product for that industry, whatever the performance or, or attribute was that you desired from a product, but use that from a low carbon intensity, naturally derived source. That was what it meant to take an industry and and all birdsify it, if you will. And and I think you know we're still such a young company. We have a great foundation, but like we we have barely started chapter one of this business. And and I think uh, we've already made a pretty nice bit of headway on that idea that this is the way that you can have an aligned business model that is uh, has good financial impact and good environmental impact all uh, from a single transaction. And that's the legacy that we'd like to lead. And I think uh, for sure it can happen in lots of other industries. I think Tesla is a great example of it happening in the electric car industry and, and electrifying automobiles. So I, there, there's already ones that are out there. And I think there's going to be many, many more, particularly as consumers start doing a little more about what they say they care about, which there is still quite a, a big gap between what they say and what they do uh, at the point of sale. So we're or I'm convinced that that will shrink and converge over time, uh, particularly as this younger demographic grows up and, and, and has more disposable income. But as that shrinks, uh, there's going to be lots more all birdsification across many industries. And I think the practices we've laid out uh, hopefully are, are paving the way and giving the roadmap for lots of others. I know a little bit about your history. And I think initially, there wasn't there some sense of what was your identity? Was it going to be for sneakerheads or soccer moms? Uh, I mean, in terms of branding yourself and getting the shoes for these specific consumer targets. Yeah. You know, the, the, um, sneakerhead market is, I would say kind of a part of the fast fashion, uh, complex, if you will. And, you know, part of what we do with the innovations around natural materials is that sometimes those, those can be a little bit slower on the innovation side, but when you, when you get a great innovation, it's quite breakthrough. And so it can make a really profound impact uh, on the business. So our, our approach has really been to build much more timeless types of products that are not cycling through and chasing every trend that's out there, but really speaking about our brand to consumers through beautiful materials that are very textural and, and aesthetically different and quite beautiful because of those inherent natural qualities. And I think that timelessness is, is, you know, it can be subject to fad cycles up and down, but that, that's, uh, that can be a strategy that stands the test of time. So how long do generally a pair of law birds last before you have to pack them in or um, go to the I landfill? Mean, I I, I still see people wearing the ones we launched on March 1st of 2016, having a great time and barely wanting to buy a new one because they're lasting them so well. So they, I mean, it depends on the use, but we'd like you to at least wear them for two years before ever considering uh, changing for a new pair. But, uh, you know, some people, Americans buy eight pairs of shoes a year. And this is, this is the tension in, in, in being a retailer but being uh, in a consumption industry, but being one born about the idea that you can you can actually change things significantly for the environment while still operating in this com consumption environment. And you know, my, my I, people may ask, can, can those two things coexist? But I, I really believe that if consumers are going to buy eight pairs of shoes a year in America, and that's the average. Um, I thought the so, average so, was like 19 pairs of shoes owned by Americans. Oh, well, that 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 is probably low. But every single year, the average American buys eight pairs of new new shoes a year. 
but owns and, about nineteen pairs of shoes. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they throw out a couple, but the um, but eight eight, eight pairs per year. Americans aren't going to change their consumption patterns, so it's it's incumbent on the business to do a better job for the for uh, both the impact side uh, and and certainly for the societal value. And if we can continue to deliver great impact on the environmental side, and we steal market share from our competition, the world's going to be a far better off place. So that that's how I've I've, I've kind of. Uh, been able to uh, think through those tensions and guide the company uh, from when we started to make sure our alignment around our mission and our financial objectives are all, always stay in tuned. Well, don't misunderstand me. You know, I commend and admire the mission and what you're trying to do vis-a-vis the environment. But I often find myself thinking, you mentioned Tesla, for example, I often find myself thinking about all the problems with electric cars in terms of the minerals that have to be yeah. uh, taken out of the earth. I think about methane, and I also think about, uh, well, Molly Willows wrote an article about your company, which I think was favorable. Um, she said, uh, the real green deal, or um, uh, I want to get the title exactly right, the real green deal, or marketing mumbo-jumbo, and she came out more on the side of the former than the latter. Uh, it was a very excellent article, I thought. But there's a climate scientist, Kevin Anderson, who's quoted in this article saying, you know, when you talk about um, net at 2510, down to zero or near zero, you're just kind of kicking the can down the road. And when you think about all these other environmental things that I mentioned, like Tesla with the electric mineral, sometimes feels a little bit like Sisyphus. You know, we're rolling a stone up a hill and then just being catapulted back down. Uh, I don't want to sound cynical here or skeptical, but you must wrestle with this. I mean, you're making an impact. There's no question about that. You're doing something noble. But at the same time, there's that problem with well, the fashion industry, for example, in general, all that it's doing that you're not doing or that you're doing in countervailing measure, um, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I think the way, the way uh, climate targets are set today needs some work. Um, the science-based target uh, understated regime. to be sure, Joey. Yes. Yeah, I mean, very understatement of the, of the decade, maybe. The, the, you know, look, we, we were already the lowest carbon emissions in our industry when we started this target to get to zero by 2030. So uh, we're, we're talking about percentage reductions off of already the lowest base in the industry. So, you, you know, I think that there, there's an important reference point there. We're, we're not trying to cast stones at the rest of the industry. We, we are looking inward and trying to do the best we can and un- use that to unlock great growth. And And I do think Look, the impact is of, of our shoe company, even if we re- reach the size of Nike, is still going to be a, a you know a drop of water in the bucket of the climate problem. That's not how we make an impact. You know, we do make an impact, albeit small, on the molecule level in terms of the number of emissions. But what we can evoke across different industries and within our own industry, that is where the real power comes from. And I think that to to understate the impact of an emotional purchase in America in particular, which is the largest consumption economy in the world, is to understate the value that can be created from brands to do the storytelling and convey what is important for a society to think about and how to get people to aspire to be part of that that tribe and that journey. Now that that is something that can be quite special. And sometimes politicians lead, sometimes they lag and follow. In this case, they are following far behind. And we are trying to push the agenda in terms of how people think about and the paradigm that 
Sustainability doesn't need to be bad. It doesn't need to be worse quality. It doesn't need to be ugly. It can be beautiful. It can be incredible performance. And it can also do the work of the environmental uh, environmentalist interest. And one and, hopes and it we, can be a kind of meme for other companies as well. That's right. That's right. Here's Tammy from Seattle who says, what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs looking to prioritize sustainability in their businesses? Big question, but well, your thoughts. Yeah, I would say um, the most important thing is to not make it a appendage of the business. It's it can't be it can't be a CSR corporate social responsibility initiative that you know you give one percent back to the planet something like that. It's got to be woven into the DNA of the product or service that you offer as a business. And if you can find a way to make that alignment. Uh, at the core offering so that you truly are selling what you are saying. Now that is, that is a powerful piece of alignment. And frankly, that's not only the most important thing for our business to be successful, but that's my personal motivation. That's why I get up out of bed every day and still get excited to go to work a decade into this thing. Uh, and, and through all the very, very hard things of running a business and it's never easy. When people talk about the environmental responsibilities of companies or businesses, they often stress things like worker treatment and worker rights and pay for workers and so forth and so on. Uh, you don't have collective bargaining or unionization? We do in some areas of our business, but in the not in the U.S. So how do you respond to workers' needs? Uh, how do you put them as a priority or do you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, our, our company is a B Corp. We are a, a, a public benefit corporation, which is an actual legal structure in Delaware where we have our stated public benefit as environment, environmental conservation. So for us, that is number one. That is the highest important priority and within that climate change, which is the beating heart of our planet. So let's not solve an, a, a knee issue if we have a, a heart issue. Um, so th that's the focus for us. But that doesn't mean that we uh, neglect the other stakeholders that are critical for the business, whether that's our supply chain partners and the workers in our factories, or if it's our own employees and people in our stores or our corporate offices. So that's why we, we kind of went on and certified as a, as a B corporation, which really is an expansive uh, kind of a, a stakeholder oriented form of capitalism versus a uh, you know, profit only form of, of, of capitalism. And, and so we subscribe to that as a better way to grow the business, a more sustainable model, uh, more durable model, I should say, not to confuse the terms we're talking about quite a bit here, um, a more durable model of building a, a multi-decade company. Uh, and so that, that's the approach that we've taken. And, and, uh, you know, if, if, uh, a group wanted to unionize in our company, I think it would be uh, probably a a net negative, but for 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 the interaction between our employees and and our company and the management of the company. But what we strive to do is to have great communication and dialogue and understand their needs and meet their needs or more than meet their needs in terms of compensation or whatever other issues there are, such that it would never come to that because that once it gets there, typically unionization is a, is a consequence of of poor communication and 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 different maltreatment of employees. So I would expect that we would continue to be able to avoid that given how we treat our employees. It's fair to say you're bullish on capitalism. What do you say to all these uh, young would-be socialists or especially the whole generation that identifies with what was called with Bernie Sanders democratic socialism or maybe moving toward more socialistic principles and ideology? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the uh, history of the world has shown that the greatest, uh, the greatest tool to lift people out of poverty and increase the quality of life has been capitalism. And capitalism is dynamic and it is uh, competitive. It forces progress and innovation. And I think those are great things. Now, I'm not, not sitting here saying that uh, played out to an extreme that that's wonderful because there are winners and losers in capitalism. So that's where society and government needs to make sure to step in. And we have a pretty progressive tax policy in America. You can argue it can be higher or lower, but depending on where you sit on that spectrum. But I think the power of of market forces and incentives that are structured that way, which is at the root of capitalism, is um, it, it is it is incredibly powerful. And I think alongside good public policy, which is market-based incentives on public side from government, the dynamic nature of the private sector is, is going to be the duo that takes us to the finish line of conquering the climate change problem. Well, in capitalism, you also learn from your mistakes. Uh, and you had too early a rollout, really. That was uh, something that led to some consequences that I suppose you've learned a lot from, but also there were revenue losses and store closings that resulted, and then direct sales uh, were kind of the benefits of those overstated at one point in your history? Um, if you mean from an accounting perspective, no. <laughs> but we've, we've never uh, never been any uh, issues there. But um, I, I think you know, maybe if I could uh, try to unpack the question a little bit, you know, we came out fast. Our first calendar year of operating a full calendar year was 2017. And I think we did something like 60 or $70 million in revenue. And we, you know, we had like 20 people. So that, that was fast, way, way faster than any business plan Tim and I had ever conjured up. So, so we were, we were, you know, too fast maybe in some ways <laughs> too fast. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of companies are built slowly with really understanding deeply this core tribal group of people who are evangelical followers of your brand and your products and you make product for them. It was, it went so fast and we went so broad that it was sometimes very hard to understand deeply who these core customers were actually were and what exactly to design for them. And then you compound that with the fact that four years into our journey, we're over 200 million in revenue and a pandemic happens and consumers are switching their behavior, you know, every week, it seemed like at that time with huge different distortions from, from, uh, from works in the market and government giving incentives and a whole bunch of things that made it so difficult. So, you know, I think the the um in 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 a lot of ways we were incredibly fortunate and lucky to launch the business when we did and in other ways we had uh incredible challenges as a result of that so it enabled our initial success and also hampered our ability to to navigate through it as effectively as one would want so learned a ton through that and 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 i'm the first to admit that it has not been easy at times and you know we've been we've been undergoing after uh, after ending the year in twenty two with way too much inventory, misreading some consumer signals during that time, we've had to go into a fairly transformational effort within the program, doing work that's not fun all the time. Uh, you mentioned some of it, and and you know we're now a year into that two year transformation, and we've done a great job of doing what we said we were going to do. Uh, and and now I'll leave you with a little cliffhanger on on that. Uh, that portion of our conversation that uh, we have amazing stuff coming both on the product and the marketing side, but time will tell. Well, you're also a public company now. What does that mean in terms of time telling? Yeah. Public company. Uh, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I really work hard to make sure everyone is focused on, on the mid and the long term. 
while we pay attention to the short term. But you can you can uh, feel the pressure when you're in the public markets. There's so much scrutiny every quarter, and you know businesses that are oriented around building a, a multi-decade successful brand and business. Uh, don't operate on quarterly cycles, but the financial markets do. So you have to you have to tell a story every quarter. You have to show your results every quarter. Uh, and the media likes to tell a negative story when they can pick apart financials in detail, which is quite different when you're a private company. So it's been hard as we enter a transformation as a as a young and relatively small company within our industry. Um, it's not easy. There's been really vulnerable moments and uh, very trying times inside the company and how it affects employees' morale. You can't you can't ignore it when people's compensations are tied to this the price of the stock. So it, it's tough on a human level, on an emotional level, and on a on a strategic and a business level. And so uh, it's been a very expansive time for my learning and a very challenging time in many other ways. And what about the pressures uh, or the responsibilities were? so-called DEI is concerned, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, I know you have uh, diversity in most of your retail workers, but I'm talking about the whole picture of the company itself. Yeah, we've done quite good work there. Um, we, you know, we, we uh, I, I believe in, maybe just talk about how we've tried to shape it in the company. Um, you know, I think businesses are better when you have a diverse workforce because, you know, if you only pick from, a subset of the population, you're certainly not going to give yourself the best chance of, of, uh, of getting the best talent. And you're also not going to get the best ideas when they're converging and debating and talking together. So I think diversity is an incredible value driver for business. And so I believe in it deeply just for that reason alone, not, not, notwithstanding all the other societal benefits that, that are important around that. And, and yet you can only be inclusive, you can only be successful with a diverse workforce if you're inclusive. So, I think that's incredibly important to make people feel comfortable to speak out and debate vigorously without fear of reprisal because of their background. So those are the way we have shaped it. And hence, we have a very gender diverse group. We have a very ethnic diverse group inside of every level of leadership uh, and worker at the company. Um, always more progress to be done. And there's lots of societal challenges that impact our ability to do that as well. Um, and geographical challenges, frankly, being being based in San Francisco. Uh, so yeah, we, we, I think we, we do the work, but again, um, that's the lens that we've taken. It's not about equality of outcomes for us. It's really about equality of opportunity and focused on the right business outcomes. And that's how we've always thought about the idea of diversity and inclusion. Got a question from Mark in San Francisco who wants to know, how do you see the future of sustainable fashion evolving and what role do you envision Allbirds playing in that future? Thank you for the question, Mark. So I, I, I think that I'll, I'll take the last part first. Um, the idea of sustainability to be great in the fashion industry is that it has to be almost a Trojan horse. And that is how we look at it. So we, we try not to talk about our sustainable credentials as, as forthcoming as one might expect when we're compelling someone to buy product. We are focused on the greatness of the product and what it's going to do for you on a tangible feature and benefit basis. But this free gift with purchase that we give you, that it's the most sustainable product in the world, I think over time people are going to realize that we've built a great business and we've done it because it's sustainable, not, not 
not because we've talked about the story or we've convinced people um, that that's the right thing to do. Like, forget that. We are trying to build the best business outside of sustainability, but fuel it because it's sustainable. So I see that as a Trojan horse where we wake up in a decade and, and all birds hopefully will be uh, one of the biggest leaders in the footwear industry. And you'll say, wow, holy crap, they've actually done this. And they're also really sustainable. So that that's, that's the Trojan horse nature of this. And that's why we talk about it as a free gift with purchase when you, when you buy uh, one of our products. Um, now I think, some of this is going to be further stimulated by regulation to get to maybe the first part of your question. I, I do think some of the California legislation that started is a bellwether for what is coming uh, globally, which is going to be a heavy focus on disclosure first. And that disclosure will start with voluntary or, or mandatory, but not uh, audited disclosure, then it will be audited. And then there's going to be enforcement. And I think that enforcement will likely come in the form of, of making sure that it's not businesses who get to privatize all the profits and socialized all the risk and, and costs of all these environmental impacts and pollution that, that businesses are making, but they actually have to pay for it. And that will come. And, and what form that takes uh, is yet to be seen. And, uh, and some, some folks in Washington are going to be pretty important in, in deciding how that goes down. Uh, but that is, that is what I think is the future of the fashion industry. It will take some time, but I do think that if there's really good leadership and in, in companies who approach it, like I just described as a free gift with purchase, we have a shot at propelling this quite quickly. I have an image in my mind of a Trojan horse right now, uh, which is central in my consciousness. It's a, it's a green, green Trojan yeah, horse. A green Trojan horse, exactly. Here's James from New York City. Looking ahead, what are some of the key goals or milestones you hope to achieve in the next few years? Um, well... I think the uh, for for um, for Allbirds specifically, what what uh, after a year where we've you know pulled down a whole bunch of inventory, had a tough time. We've been discounting product a little bit. You'll see very little discount from here forward uh, is our ambition, and the way that we are able to do that is to uh, connect this amazing new product in particular, and also our existing product and tell wonderful stories about what those are doing for our consumers and some of the great stories all the way back to the farms of, of our, of our sheep farmers and, uh, people managing the farms for our, um, for our eucalyptus fibers and castor bean oil, all those, all those great componentry. They're really evocative storytelling. And if we can compel these timeless classics that we make from a footwear perspective with these beautiful materials that haven't been used in our industry. Um, I, I think there's a shot at really propelling the company and, and being uh, a really great growth story uh, for financial investors again. And I think that would be great for our business and that's what we're striving for. So it's all about innovation and wonderful storytelling from here. We've cleaned up the business in the way that we needed to from a structural perspective and now it's off to the races. It's a pretty exciting new new start to a new chapter for me. Storytelling, innovation, but also selling. I mean, you're good as a CEO at selling your product and you come across as someone who really has confidence and belief in your product and passion about why people should consume it. I feel incredibly deeply about it. Someone was laughing at me the other day because I was... I was <laughs> <laughs> out an event and and I um I was so deeply passionate I I then um some would say bullied someone into buying a pair uh, on their mobile phone that year but I I believe in it that it's going to make people feel better and they've just been missing it you know this is one of the challenges being a young company you, you know 
Well, somebody might say to you, Joey, come on, we're just talking about shoes here, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't take shoes as seriously as you do in terms of what it means to their being and their organ as an organism. Michael, I didn't even care about shoes when I started this business. I, I, I care a lot more now, but I, I did not care about shoes whatsoever. This is a lot bigger than shoes for me because I do believe in the impact that we can make if we pull this off. And uh, I believe in the products that we make, that they align with the mission and they're the best for the consumer for what we're making them for. So uh, I, I, um, I I feel incredibly confident that I can get behind that and sell it and I do it every day. And th that's, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's important to believe in what you do. That's for sure. As a CEO, though, I mean, you not only have all those responsibilities uh, to sell, but you also have the responsibilities of all those who work under you. And I'm wondering, I'm just thinking about factory conditions and uh i know you know you've got an operation in uh, well in south korea right uh, vietnam is our is our predominant you're source in now. vietnam mainly yeah yeah um what do you do on transparency for factory conditions we um we publish all of our so we we, we do factory audits um at least annually but we actually do them um, less formally, much more frequently than that. Uh, and then we publish the results of the audits and any, any, uh, if any risks pop up during the audits of those factories, we're publishing those and we're mitigating the impacts. And um, that's how we maintain compliance. But we also just take a partnership approach with our factory. We, we, we work with the second largest footwear manufacturer in the world that make more than 200 million pairs of shoes a year. And so they, they have to be the best. And so we, we, we know we're working with the best. We take a deep partnership approach. And yet, you know, it's uh, like the, the old saying, uh, trust and verify, trust, but verify. You know, we also do our homework and make sure it's audited. And then we show consumers, go on our website and you can see all the reports on it. I used to do uh, a number of events with CEOs through the years uh, when I was a public radio host. And one of the things that I was able to glean from all that experience was Heavy is the head that wears the crown, you know, so to speak. I mean, there's a lot of responsibilities, a lot of onus and burden that goes with running a company and being in charge of a company. And one of the things that came out particularly was the desire to have more freedom in terms of family and recreation. I mean, there's a lot of pressure that goes with being a CEO and heading a company like you do. How do you make that balance? How do you navigate through that? It's a damn privilege to have my job. I mean, let me just say it like that, first and foremost. Like, sure, it's a hard job, but it's an absolute privilege. And I, I um, do not take that for granted for a day. And the fact that I can uh, w help create a business where the incredible talent that we bring into our doors um, is feels like they want to be part of that mission and do the best work of their life. And, and I can hopefully facilitate an environment that allows them to do the best work of their life. No, but forgive like, me, what a, I'm actually that, getting at here is do other things in your life get sacrificed because so much is on you and you're so committed and you have so course. much time. Yeah. Yes, and they do. Yes. So what do you do about I, the, that I balance? Mean, well, I mean, for the, the most important, the most important person to all birds, um, if, if you think the CEO is the most important uh, person, the uh, the most important to Allbirds is my wife and the support that she has given in allowing, uh, uh, supporting me in doing this. And we have two year checkpoints between us every every two years. Um, and it's it's hard. We've had 
Uh, we had twins when, when I started the business, they were one. And then we've had an, a third kid after that. Uh, and it's extraordinarily busy having three kids and running a business like this, going through all the, the volatility that we've been. So um, there's, there's no balance. Um, it's the only reason that, that it can be done is because I have this uh, insanely incredible support network and partner who not only is like uh, helping share a much greater share of the responsibilities, but also a strategic partner that I can talk to about the business every day. And she's uh, much more brilliant than I am on lots of aspects of the consumer and fashion marketplace, as well as a great thought partner for hard people decisions that we have to make inside the business. So if I didn't have her, it'd be, there's no chance that I could do this job. So my, my, uh, my only balance is uh, when you, when you have Liz and me, together and then you divide that by two that's how we get balance downtime chilling that figure into this yeah i mean i'm i I just i try to just be focused when i'm doing work and then i focus on my kids and wife when we're not so um we we got we got good time I, i i have i have always tried to hire incredible executives that are well ahead of the stage of company that we're at and been reasonably successful in doing that and that allows me to uh, focus on a narrow set of responsibilities that are the most important um, for the long term, but the least probably time consuming. And that allows me to make sure that I can c- keep some sense about me and allow me to focus when I'm off. Well said. Here's Javier from Sacramento has a question. He wants to know, in what ways, if any, does Allbirds engage with policymakers and industry stakeholders to advocate for more sustainable practices across the overall fashion industry? Yeah, you know, we've, we, so we, um, we were part of an association, I, I won't name which one it is, but we, we authored the sustainability advocacy uh, program for the Footwear Trade Association that I'm referring to. Um, they, they're mostly about uh, reducing tariffs for the footwear industry, so that, that interests us quite a bit less. Um, so we're not as active in that, in that, in that domain. So, but that, but that's a that that's an example of where we've really tried to steer the the voice of the, of an industry uh, in terms of how policymakers perceive what the industry wants um, in in the right direction from a carbon mitigation perspective. That's one, and um, I, I've worked with a lot of Congress people and senators to. Uh, talk about different policy ideas uh, of which that I think would be the most powerful to change the game in terms of uh, how this world consumes and and the carbon impact of how. Excuse me, do you have lobbyists uh, on your payroll? No, no, we don't. Too small, and 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 our our interests are generally not um, business oriented interests with the government, given how small we are in our industry. So it's more environmental and. Um, that we, 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 we are part of associations who lobby and advocate for environmental issues, but not, um, no lobbyists on the payroll. You ever pick up a phone and call a Congress, uh, person or somebody in high policymaking position? Qu- quite a bit, quite yeah. a bit. Give me an example just for the, and well, I, I, I've talked with, um, I've talked with our, our Congressman and Marin, Jared Huffman, quite a number of times on this, on this topic, um, had the good fortune to, uh, share ideas around uh, greening the economy with President Obama and and uh, 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 other people um, close to that level. And just yesterday, I was on the phone with uh, an aspiring senator uh, from Utah named John Curtis, who is uh, from a very conservative place, is the third district of Utah, which is in Provo, where he was formerly the mayor. And he is the leader of the Republican 
Republican uh, Environmental Caucus or Republican Climate Caucus. I think that's Republican Climate Caucus. So he leads that, which now has 85 Republicans in that group who are actually talking about reasonably what would have what would have been described 20 years ago as extremely conservative policies but now would be extremely progressive uh and and so you know talking on the phone to make sure uh he uh, you know we have a voice in terms of how we see the world and how we think things should go in terms of policy to advance the u.s economy as well as as well as the overall global situation with climate so yeah pretty pretty regular let me ask you before we conclude, uh, ad advice that you might have not only for young would-be entrepreneurs, but people who want to do something along the lines that you have done and succeeded at doing, that is establish a business and make it successful, but also advice for those who really want to make a difference where the climate is concerned. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if that's a big concern for you as a human being, um, which I hope it is, it's not true for everyone. I think it is the existential threat um, for our species from the last 30 years to the next 50 years. And we're not gonna solve the whole thing for another 50 years. So um, it, is, it is a transformational exercise and experiment for the human species. And within that, whether you're interested in policy and government or in business and entrepreneurship, those are going to be, in my view, the two most important factors in terms of how we solve the problem. And so just get on board and start doing things in that area and you'll build the transferable skills because even if you get it wrong once or twice in terms of the kind of company or the way you're attacking the problem, those skills and that deep set of expertise is going to translate to something good over time because this is a problem that we have to solve. Otherwise, the heart stops beating, as I said earlier. So... Uh, I, I think it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful pursuit to put your professional life into because it matters the most. And I also think it's a smart business decision and personal financial decision to start building up your expertise in an area that's so important to the world. Like you say, an existential question. I hope, uh, notwithstanding my metaphor about Sisyphus rolling up the, the stone up the hill and having a catapult back down, existentialism in its finest form. Thank you, Albert Camus that it doesn't necessarily operate along those lines, that we can make some progress and not keep falling back. Let me thank you. Let me also mention, for those of you listening, that there are other episodes that we've done that you may want to avail yourself of. Uh, number nine with Bill McKibben, a leading force in this whole climate change and uh, actually uh, decarbonization fight and battle that we are all engaged in or all ought to be engaged in. Uh, our 29th episode was with Molly Kawahata, who was White House Climate Advisor to President Obama. And we also um, just recently had the good fortune of interviewing um, Christina Dahl, uh, who is leading scientist for Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, and I want to thank all of you who joined us for this week's episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all who will be hearing the episode on Apple, Spotify, or at our graymatter.show website where once again, you can sign up and become a member, which we urge you to do if you haven't yet, and that's Gray with an E. Thanks to our team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Jeff, and Colleen, and a special thanks to this episode's special guest, Albert's CEO, Joey Zwellinger. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.